Hello again, everyone. Welcome to the Yukon Internal Medicine Ambulatory Podcast Series. This is Juan Chango, one of the chief medical residents at the University of Connecticut Internal Medicine Program. This podcast will cover the perioperative management of known cardiac conditions. We will review perioperative management goals and the importance of it, focusing on known cardiac conditions. We will discuss cardiac conditions in our next episode. First, Let's start with an overview and review of the goals of perioperative evaluation and management. Surgeries have three phases. First, preoperative or before the surgery. Second, intraoperative or during surgery. And third, postoperative, which includes the time after surgery until the patient resumes usual activities. Although the terms preoperative assessment or pre-op are widely used, a better term is perioperative evaluation since it covers the three phases of relevance for any surgical procedure. Our goal is to reduce perioperative morbidity and mortality and help our patients to return to their usual activities as soon as possible. It is crucial to understand that physicians do not offer surgical clearance for patients. It is never possible to clear a patient given that the risks for unwanted outcomes from procedures or surgeries will be always present. Instead, we can identify risks of the patient during the perioperative period and what we can do to mitigate them. An approach to the identification of surgical risks can be made by dividing them into three categories. First, the surgery itself, which includes the type of surgery, the urgency of the surgery, and the need for it. Second, the patient, including past medical history, history of surgical or anesthetic complications. And third, medications, which include over-the-counter medications and supplements. Something important to remember is that at least 50% of patients undergoing surgery take medications regularly. Let's talk about the surgical risk first. There are several tools to calculate surgical risk. One of the most commonly used is the Revised Cardiac Risk Index, or RCRI, which classifies intraperitoneal, intrathoracic, and supraingwinal vascular as high risk. Other tools are available as well, giving a similar risk assessment helpful to understand the risk according to the procedure to be performed. Lower risk surgeries usually include superficial, peripheral surgeries, or procedures such as endoscopies. Second, patient-specific risks. An approach to the identification of patient risks can be done by organs and systems. For example, if we are evaluating the pulmonary system, we can evaluate for current tobacco use, COPD, asthma, chronic lung disease, history of OSA, and other conditions that can increase that surgical risk. Physicians can then decide if testing or management of a condition before the patient is a better surgical candidate is necessary. Third, medications. Medication management is one of the most critical aspects of perioperative evaluations and treatment. Here, we will summarize the most relevant recommendations depending on drug classes. First, cardiovascular medications, beta blockers. Since an abrupt withdrawal from beta blockers can result in hypertension, tachycardia, and myocardial ischemia, they should be continued throughout the perioperative period, including the day of surgery. Alpha-2 agonists. Withdrawal of an alpha-2 agonist can cause significant hypertension and myocardial ischemia, therefore they should be continued during the day of surgery. Calcium channel blockers can also be continued, including the day of surgery. 
ACE inhibitors and ARBs can cause significant hypotension during surgery and therefore it is recommended to hold them on the day of the surgery. However, if the indication is heart failure or poorly controlled hypertension, sometimes they may need to be continued. Diuretics can be held in the morning of surgery to avoid hypotension and hypovolemia. Statins can be safely continued. And non-statin lipid-lowering agents such as niacin and fibrates can cause rhabdomyolysis, which is why we recommend to hold them on the day of surgery. Second, gastrointestinal and pulmonary agents. H2 blockers and PPIs can safely be continued throughout the periperitoneal period. Inhaled bronchodilators such as beta agonists and anticholinergics can also be continued and if sometimes the patient cannot comply with the inhalation maneuvers, we can use nebulized forms instead. Theophylline has a narrow therapeutic window and therefore it is recommended to discontinue the day before surgery. Leukotriene inhibitors can safely be continued as well. Third, estrogen and hormonal agents. Oral contraceptives. If low to moderate risk of VTE, continue with appropriate perioperative VTE prophylaxis. However, if high risk of VTE, we should stop four weeks before the surgery. And don't forget to perform a pregnancy test for these patients before surgery. Postmenopausal hormone therapy. If there is a low to moderate risk of VTE, we can continue with appropriate perioperative VTE prophylaxis. However, if high risk of VTE, we should stop two weeks before surgery. Fourth, agents affecting hemostasis. Aspirin. Continuation of aspirin can increase the risk of bleeding. However, depending on the indication for it, discontinuation can increase the risk for vascular complications, for example, myocardial ischemia. Therefore, it is crucial to discuss this plan with the patient's cardiologist. In general, we can hold aspirin seven days before non-cardiovascular surgeries. P2Y12 receptor blockers such as clopidogrel, prasugrel, ticagrelor. Similar to aspirin, we should discuss the plan with the patient's cardiologist. When they are used after cardiac stenting, discontinuation can cause ischemia. Ideally, elective procedures should be delayed until the mandatory period for platelet inhibition is complete. When used for long-term stroke prophylaxis, these agents should be discontinued 5 to 10 days before surgery depending on which one is being used. Warfarin and DOAX Warfarin and DOAX, including Davigatran, Rivaroxaban, Apixaban, and Edoxaban in non-valvular atrial fibrillation. When a low-risk procedure will be performed, in general, warfarin and DOAX can be continued. Examples of low-risk procedures include dental extractions, cataract surgery, diagnostic endoscopy and colonoscopy, and dermatology procedures. However, the patient's risk of bleeding should be addressed. If the risk is increased, for example, if there is concomitant use of aspirin, we should weigh the risks and benefits of the procedure to be performed. For warfarin, depending on the patient's INR, we may need to discontinue it from 3 to 5 days before the procedure. Sometimes bridging may be needed. Therefore, tables such as the ACC-AHA guidelines can help us decide the appropriate timing. Bridging with another anticoagulant may be needed for patients at risk for thromboembolism. For patients with a low risk and a chats basque score of 4 or less, bridging is not needed. For patients with a CHATS-BASC score of 5 to 6, 
history of VTE more than three months before, we can use the HAS bled score to determine the risk of bleeding. If the bleeding risk is high, no bridging is recommended. For patients with a low bleeding risk and a prior history of CBA, TIA, or systemic embolism, bridging is recommended. Fifth, psychotropic agents. In general, antipsychotic medications can be continued with close monitoring of the QTC interval. Benzodiazepines, buspron, lithium, TCAs, and valproic acid can be continued. It is important to monitor lithium and electrolyte values as well. For SSRIs, given that they have been associated with an increased risk of bleeding, we should discontinue them three weeks before high-risk surgeries, for example, CNS procedures. Finally, let's quickly discuss risk mitigation. Our strategy for risk mitigation can focus on two goals. First, the optimization of the patient's risks, for example, treating a COPD exacerbation before surgery. Second, surgical risk assessment and discussion. Here, we will try to assess if surgery is the best option for the patient and also look for potential alternatives. Usually, this will be done by the surgical teams, but the medicine teams can help in the discussions as well. After performing a perioperative evaluation, it is important to communicate our assessment and recommendations to the referring physician, such as the surgeon. Those should include which medications need to be modified, held, or continued in the perioperative period. The plan should be clear so that they can follow our recommendations. Thank you for listening. We will discuss the cardiac conditions and perioperative management in our next episode. Goodbye.